0: And you can become part of our Discord community. Learn more about the show and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com.
1: So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Well, I have a long list of things I want to talk to you about today.
0: Oh, does it Did include? Start...
1: It didn't, it... but
0: now it does. Does it include lo- uh, llamas running through the it city? It does.
1: It has that to do with that. I want to talk about Llamagate. Hashtag Llamagate.
0: <laughs> oh, I love Arizona. Right? <laughs>
1: uh, so what do you uh, yeah. What do you think? What was that all about? Big, big llamas. <laughs>
0: I don't... It's just... So, that was just crazy. You know, and uh, it's it clearly not... Uh, I mean, you know, Sun City is... I drive through Sun City to uh, to get places, so it's not that far from me. So to know that there are llamas roaming free, that is... what is this world coming to, Pete?
1: Well, so the biggest question I have is: was um, was Arizona as nuts about Lamegate as the internet was?
0: Well, I it certainly I, I saw the news. Uh, stations popping up, talking about it on Facebook as well, so clearly they were tapping into it um I didn't hear any actual person talk about it at all. No That's no, no, I take funny. that back. I take that back. I heard one person bring it up today, so uh I don't know, so take that for what it's worth
1: well i it's pretty predictable that i that you know the people who live there would not care quite so much about it as the internet, yeah, that happens to us too. I get it. I'm disappointed because, you know, my goodness, Twitter was fantastic today. This was one of those great Twitter days. <laughs> because it took a long time to suss out were they llamas or were they alpacas. Oh. And see. that as it turned out was a very difficult thing uh, a mystery to solve. So th- thank God for Reddit and Twitter.
0: It's hard to tell Cereal from those aerial se- aerial photos. <laughs>
1: exactly. Serial season 2 is actually I think just been locked.
0: This is this is what happens in the lazy first world. <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
1: Uh, so you, uh, what tell me your story. What did you want to talk about? I, our uh, well, the Joe show, no, I, I was, I was accepted, that. I don't yeah, know, you've heard of that, was accepted <laughs> to into about. the
0: Luxembourg film festival of all places. And S- they're S- actually that, flying. <laughs>
1: That's
0: right. Who needs to go to Cannes? <laughs> <in> Luxembourg? <laughs> they're flying us out though. So that is so cool. Yeah. So I'm adding Luxembourg to my bucket list and then I'll be able to check it right off Do of there. Do
1: that in a hurry.
0: Absolutely. So yeah, I'm going to go spend a week in Luxembourg. I'm going to take a uh, little—I'm bringing my wife with me, so we're going to take a little jaunt over to uh, Paris and uh, spend a couple days there as well.
1: Ah, gay Paris.
0: Gay Paris. I was very (sighs) tempted to bring a still of Val Kilmer from Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and take a picture with that in Paris.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know what you need to do? You actually need to do uh, some uh, uh, Lavender Hill Mob action.
0: I was thinking about that, too. I was thinking about making sure that I get a little Eiffel Tower statue that I uh-huh. can bring and, and pretend that it's uh, actually melted gold.
1: Oh, would you please do that? You have to get the one that's actually, there's got to be one actually on the tower. Got to go Hasht- to the Eiffel Tower.
0: Hashtag 2015 Pony Prize. <laughs> oh,
1: my God. I love it so much. Um, all right. Well, I have the, you want to kind of talk about the other thing I wanted to talk to you about?
0: Okay. Uh, Oscars. Ah, wonderful night for Oscar. Oscar, Oscar, who will win?
1: <laughs> How would you feel just in general about it? Uh,
0: it was uh it was a bit of a slog. Yeah, it was a slog. Wow. I a I, bit? I was I was it was just the energy was just it was it was pretty lifeless, which yeah. was really disappointing cuz I like NPH quite a bit, but I just think that the people behind the Oscars just need to go because i really feel like they've been floundering for a decade now and yep. they haven't quite found the right magic uh formula to make it work again. Yep. And uh i mean i was as far as who won i you know i was i was pretty pleased with pretty much all of them. i didn't have any problems with anything. Um it was nice to see that uh every film nominated for best picture won at least one award. Yeah. i think the last time that happened was i think 2007 Hmm. and uh yeah i i uh you know you know the my my biggest complaint is that the lego movie was not even nominated for best animated picture i was gonna
1: say that the big hero 6 one was fine i was a big fine uh you know i thought it was a fine film my kids loved it it was essentially i saw it after you saw it and i think you're you nailed it like i maybe you ruined it for me but it was not as good as the very best of the pixar kind of animated films Mm -hmm. of the disney animated films but it was fine and the kids loved it so it was great just didn't have as much heart as i really wanted it to have and so when it won it just was another reminder that um you know lego movie didn't get any nod at all i mean the the twist at the end of the lego movie was just so good it was so good It was was like for the ages, for the ages. And so that really bummed me out. Um, uh, You know, I'm with you. I I think— one of the things we got last year with Ellen DeGeneres is that we, we got a character, somebody whose personality transcends the the people who—the handlers who create the show behind it. And mm-hmm. uh, her on stage, I thought when she ordered a pizza, when she did the selfie, I thought those were very charming, funny moments, and I thought it was much more entertaining to watch. And and uh, I like NPH a lot, too. Um, this was—this just didn't feel like a good fit, which really surprised me because he's such a stage man. Like, he is he is so good— um, you know, with a crowd. And I felt like, God, he's just, it felt just really chained. Uh,
0: well, and I think, because I mean, he's hosted the Tonys, and I, I, yeah. I've never seen it, but I hear he does a great job at that. And I, maybe it's there's a difference because the Tonys, I think it's a stage show first, and then it's a television broadcast exactly. second. Exactly. Yeah. And the Oscars always kind of feel like, it's a it's a, it's a a television broadcast first, but they're trying to figure out how to make the stage show part of it work, and it just never does.
1: It never does. It certainly, it didn't really this week. Um, in terms of best picture, the only one that I, I you know, and I, we texted about this a little bit. I wanted, uh, I really wanted Boyhood to win, and I know that was the long shot. I was the dark horse, but I found myself, even as Birdman won, I found myself really genuinely disappointed because that was a film that I thought w- would have held up, the nomination better for me. Hmm. Yeah. We don't I don't know. Agree. I, don't,
0: I don't know if I agree <laughs> with you on that. Uh, although I well I see, I was fine with either of those and I don't know if I'd call boyhood, the dark horse. Cause it, I, I think it was going to be one of those two, no matter what. Yeah. You I know, mean, I, in,
1: unless you're, in, unless you're grand Budapest hotel winning everything else, uh, just right. one after another, all of the bench strength awards. Right. Uh, then, you know, it was going to be one of those two.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I was proud of Grand Budapest Hotel. I was really glad to see how it did.
0: Oh, yeah. A, and I was, was really glad film. that uh, Desplat finally won. Yes. Oscar because uh, he's just been brilliant for far too long to not have an Oscar sitting on his shelf. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. I agree with that.
1: All right. So, um, all right. I think we're in violent agreement. Violent. Let's tell the people where we're from.
0: Where are we from? <laughs> Everybody, this
1: is The Next Reel. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hello! And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the second in our mystery series with Clint Eastwood's 2004 Ode to Women Who Sport Million Dollar Baby. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Real. And if you think you've got what it takes to go head-to-head against the big llama... You head over to Instagram.com slash The Next Reel and play The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag Pony Prize, hashtag Don't Poke the Steven, hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. Andy, how'd we do against the forces of evil this week? Uh,
0: this was a good week for good old Steven Smart. He really, uh, he brought it out. It was, uh, this was all alpaca all the time. <laughs> 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 going on <laughs> it was a tricky week. I had a hard time with it. It wasn't until image six and I saw it. I'm like, oh, okay, now I've pieced it all together. And uh, so did JB86, who figured it out. Predator Ooh. two.
1: Oh, yeah. nice!
0: Yeah, exactly. It was uh, great to see that uh, somebody was able to pull it out. And it's great to see that uh, uh, good old Steven Smart uh, really, uh, really socked it to the people this week.
1: Wow! Well done.
0: Absolutely. Oh.
1: Well, on that note, Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. Uh, Okay, so I have to admit, you have sent me two links to trailers. Uh, I'm more excited about one than another, but I think that's the one you're doing
0: next week. Yes.
1: Ugh, that makes me so sad.
0: The one for next week?
1: Yes, because I want to hear about it now. It's like the most (laughs) exciting trailer ever. It's exciting and terrible and strange, but let's talk about uh, this of week's. <laughs> yes,
0: all <of> those things. <laughs> well, we can only you know build anticipation know. for a whole week now. Because
1: let me say that next week's trailer, you will not just stumble across this trailer. This is a gentleman does not watch this kind of trailer.
0: <laughs> what are you doing this week? This week, uh, you know, Guillermo del Toro is a filmmaker that. I think uh, both you and I have our own little love-hate relationships with. Truly um i think you love some of the films i hate and i love the films you hate <laughs> i think it's
1: i think it is a direct inversion
0: <laughs> i believe it is i believe it is i'm curious if this one will break that streak I'm, I'm hoping it's hoping it's something that both of us will actually like it's his new film crimson peak that's going to open up in october and it looks like a haunted house uh thriller that looks really creepy um it has just a, a great tone to it all it's very gothic and uh, you know, speaking of gothic, you couldn't go uh, uh, any more perfectly than casting Tom Hiddleston, who looks like just a perfect gothic figure. Uh, Jessica Chastain, Mia Wasikowska, and Charlie Hunnam are all in it. And they all just fit perfectly in this world of this gothic, creepy, haunted house where um, there's this uh, – um, uh, Mia Wasikowska is this outsider, and uh, she's brought into this world by – um tom hiddleston who it looks like he kind of falls for her a little bit he and his sister jessica chastain have been living in this house and it seems like there have been a lot of family tragedies that have gone on in this house a lot of creepy things a lot of dead body sorts of things uh, appearing and just doing you know looking creepy like ghosts do and uh, i don't know i i think there's going to be a lot of scares i think there's going to be a lot of uh, just creepy vibes all through this. I think it's along the line of maybe more the um oh uh, what's the one that he did with the uh the little the drowned kid, the uh the devil's backbone. Devil's Oh backbone.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, that's yeah, good. Yeah.
0: That was a that was a very creepy one. And I think it's going to be a, a, more along the lines of that. Um yet I think it looks a little more mainstream at the same time. So Yeah. I don't know. I I'm quite looking forward to this one. It's just got it's full of gothic creepiness. In your own best interest, proceed with caution.
1: Has anyone died in this house? Specific deaths.
0: Violent deaths. I have to leave. I'm here to take you away. There's nowhere else to go. This is your home now.
1: Do you, do you remember the movie Gothic?
0: Um, I remember was it? Gothica. <laughs> uh, this
1: is a, it was a Ken Russell, uh, directed this movie in 1986, the movie Gothic. And it, it, uh, it starred, uh, Gabriel Byrne and Julian Sands and Natasha Richardson. It was the story of Mary Shelley's, the night Mary Shelley wrote or or came up with the idea for Frankenstein. So it was just this like Lord Byron and Shelley and they're all hanging out and drinking and doing drugs and coming up with horror stories. And it was, it was like, it was that. A very similar kind of tone in my head, and as I'm thinking about this movie, all I can see is Tom Hiddleston playing Gabriel Burns' role. Like you should go back and see this movie. It's it's really pretty divisive. It doesn't do that well. I don't think it holds up very well, but it reminds me very much of the same sort of tone that um, that is set in *Crimson Peak*. The other thing I was thinking about *Crimson Peak* is that it it's funny, isn't it? That it doesn't it sort of strike you that there may be too much movie in it to be a movie? That it it would make a great Kind of serial, like a Netflix serial.
0: I I hadn't thought about that, but now that you say that, absolutely. I think something like this would make an absolutely riveting, uh, yeah, Netflix show totally, or something like that.
1: Totally, totally, totally. And that that I can't I can't quite shake it. But I am really looking forward to it too. And and I think you may be right. This may be the one that unites us around uh, Guillermo del Toro. Here's hoping. Here's hoping.
0: Yes. So that's that's just in time for Halloween next next. Uh, well, I guess this year. Next this year, next this year. Yeah,
1: excellent. Well, uh, my trailer. Okay, so did you watch the Grammys?
0: I I didn't.
1: Did you see? Have you Have you seen any of the talk about uh, Sia's performance of Chandelier? The live performance of the of Chandelier that she did. I didn't. Okay. Well, you're a whole lot of nothing. For this conversation. So it would be very one-sided. If you did watch the Grammys, you saw Kristen Wiig as one of the dancers in Sia's live performance of Chandelier. And it's it's really a, a bizarre thing, the way Sia's whole performance aesthetic works, that she she won't show her face. And so she when she performs live, she stands in the corner of the back of the set and faces the wall like two inches from the wall and sings so nobody can ever see her face weird it is very very strange you can see the um the, there there are a number of live performances you can find of her doing this uh, and you know you can see her on like uh me you know on I, I don't know if it's oprah or no ellen ellen she did this on ellen live well anyway she did it on the, the way she does it was she's facing backwards uh i guess to entertain the audience they bring out this usually bring out this little girl i don't know if it's some relation to see or what but this little girl who was in the original video of chandelier and she does this interpretive dance and the video itself is quite stunning this little girl is incredibly I've seen, talented
0: i've seen the video yeah. yeah
1: so that girl like travels around with her and does these shows right so that little girl was in the live grammy performance but the person who really stole the show in the Grammy performance was Kristen Wig. She played another interpretive dancer wearing the same outfit, the same kind of like unitard, uh, with the same wig, and did this this performance with the little girl. They did kind of a duo instead of a uh, the solo dance, and it it was, I mean, it left me seriously speechless. It just hammered home how great. Kristen Wiig is at picking projects that showcase her abilities, even weird ones like five-minute segments on the Grammys doing interpretive dance. So my trailer is yet another example of Kristen Wiig picking a project that absolutely nails her sensibilities as an actress. This time from director Shira Piven and writer Elliot Lawrence, Wiig plays an emotionally unstable woman who wins the lottery and buys a talk show that she can host and talk all about herself in Welcome to Me.
0: Now, I'd like to get a volunteer from the audience. What's your name?
1: My name is Alice Klieg. I won $86 million. she really won the lottery?
0: Seriously. Can someone Google
1: that? You must be the big winner. I am rich.
0: Me too. I want a talk show with me as the host. You want to talk about current
1: events? No.
0: What kind of stuff do you want to talk about? Me. How much will that cost? $15 million.
1: Oh, and I want to come in on a swan boat. Wig stars with James Marsden, Alan Tudyk, Tim Robbins, Jennifer Jason Leigh, and Linda Cardellini adore her. It is just, it just comes off as funny and awkward and charming and amounts to another entry in this growing catalog of films that mark a really sad commentary on fame and aspiration in our generation. <laughs> uh, what'd you think?
0: I loved it. I was just <laughs> laughing pretty hysterically through the trailer. The concept is just brilliant. And, uh, you know, just here, here's $15 million just yeah. writing this money. Uh, writing this check to uh, go out and have this show. And she really wants to be Oprah, but clearly isn't. And it was, uh, she is, I think you're right. She is the perfect person to really um, pull it off. It I is, just, it's just uh, hand to wait. glove, right? It is absolutely. absolutely hand to glove. Absolutely.
1: She, uh, it. I, I think this trailer is absolutely worth checking out. And the movie uh, comes out the 1st of May, 2015.
0: Excellent.
1: Hey, Andy yeah you got big holes in your socks
0: these are my sleeping socks
1: (laughs) you got it you got it that was
0: the one that was the one one. if i take you on
1: i promise i'll work so hard
0: you don't question me and i'm gonna try to forget the fact that you're a girl
1: Ooh. protect myself at all times. Good. Find a man, Mary M. People
0: hear about what you're doing. <laughs> they, they life at you. <laughs> I got nobody but you, Frankie. Well, you've got me.
1: I made a lot of mistakes in my life. I'm just trying to keep you from doing the same.
0: I know, boss. Good man to have in the corner. Yes, he is. Look, hey, hey, get the hell down. You know old I him i just want to keep her with me you just protected yourself out of a championship frankie i've seen you amass almost every day for 23 years the only person who comes to church that much is the kind who can't forgive himself for something you got a fight i don't
1: know about you gonna leave me never clint eastwood Writer Paul Haggis bring uh, 2004's Million Dollar Baby with the wonderfully talented Hilary Swank. Um, man, I had never seen this movie. What? Yeah,
0: you you had never seen this. I had never seen this. Wow. Had had it been spoiled for you?
1: No, no, not at all. Not wow. at all. Wow. It had not been spoiled. I don't know what it was. You know, what? I I don't know what it was. I don't know why I missed it. I don't know why it totally snuck by. I wasn't, I just, it was not, um, I remember wanting to see it. I remember seeing it come up in the rentals and I should, oh, I should get that. I never got it. Wow. I know. So, so wow. needless to this say, is... <laughs> I was, I was shocked Yeah. that it, it turned the way
0: that it turned. I was oh, yeah.
1: blown to bits
0: it is one hell of a third act twist, isn't it? And we should
1: say, uh, yeah. And I, you know, I, we, this, it sort of snuck up on me because I, I wasn't quite ready to, to, um, I, you know, we, we're recording this a little bit early. And so I, I kind of missed my normal window for watching movies. So I started watching it last night at 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. and so by 11:45 as the big third act twist it's like i am so wide awake i'm like sitting up in bed <laughs> in the dark my wife is sound asleep <laughs> snoring away next to me and i am just like i'm i'm like twitching <laughs> <laughs> it was a hot mess.
0: Yeah, we should tell anybody who has not seen this movie yeah. before they finish listening to this episode to go watch the movie yeah, first. This cause...
1: this is one. I mean, we do we spoil movies. It's kind of what we do, and we're going to spoil this movie. If not if you're like me, and not, I would never have wanted to hear this show, um, ha- not having seen this movie. It's absolutely. It, it was absolutely worth not being spoiled. If you've managed to to live in a box like you have, like for me, the for the last <laughs> eleven, 11 years.
0: years. Oh man. Um, so. Well, that's great, though. I'm so excited that uh, you managed to not be spoiled, though. That was a big thing at the time, because all the critics were trying to figure out how to review this without spoiling the movie. Ebert had a thing in his where he gave a spoiler warning, saying, look, I don't know how to review this without uh, giving some of the plot points away, and and it's, it's going to spoil it. So it was a very big uh, thing at the time. People were really trying to juggle how much can we review about this without... Uh, without spoiling it. And even just the fact saying, hey, there's a big third act twist ends up kind of becoming this this spoiler. And so, you know, it, people had to be real careful with this. And it kind of, I mean, the movie doesn't go the way that you think it's going to go. And so it's uh, it's hard to review.
1: Really hard to review. And, I, and And also makes for one of the most satisfying sports dramas that I've ever seen. Um, because it doesn't go the direction that you think it's going to go. And yeah. yet, there is still, I'm left with a sense of redemption and victory at the end, which is what I want to feel. After a sports movie, particularly after we follow this character who is working, who has worked so hard uh, and overcome all of the odds that you can throw at this, you know, woman who's too old for the sport, who's never really boxed, but suddenly wants to box and wants to be trained by this legendary kind of Detroit trainer. And like all of these things that she has overcome, um, you know, I still walk away from this film feeling redeemed uh, by it. Yeah, it was really satisfying.
0: It absolutely is. This is a film I remember watching uh, and walking out of the theater, just feeling like just raw because of the emotional journey it took me on. And I think that really kind of held true for a lot of people, and, and still to this day, when people watch it for the first time or watch it, you know, again. I mean, I still really was hit by this film watching it again.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, where would you where would you like to start in light of the uh, spoilerificness?
0: Well, I think it's a it's a really interesting story that I don't think necessarily fits. I was I was really stewing on this story a bit um, the last twenty four hours since I watched it, just deliberating on how it fits within kind of the Hollywood mold of stories. I, I mean, the long and the short of this story is Hillary Swank is this uh, is Maggie Fitzgerald, this girl who wants to be a boxer, and she wants to have have Frankie, played by Clint Eastwood, train her. He doesn't want to because she's a girl and he doesn't think, uh, you know, girls can box and all that stuff. But he kind of is swayed by um, her insistence and by um, his friend's insistent, Morgan Freeman, um, who uh, is also brilliant in the film as Eddie Scrap Iron Dupree. And um, so he takes her on and, and trains her and goes through this uh, journey with her as she kind of becomes the next big thing in women's boxing and keeps kind of moving up and moving up the ranks. And uh, until she gets to this big fight. And, um, and then that's where... And, and, and there's a lot of surrogate daughter, surrogate father sort of relationship in there uh, between the two of them, which I think is a very important thing, a very important story element in this, in this tale that we watch. And,
1: and I think ironic that, it, that we're doing this movie, which is very much a father-daughter movie, after we did the, the father-son quint- quintology... last week
0: that's true yeah that is actually uh, something i hadn't thought about but it is kind of interesting um we definitely see you know there's an interesting subplot with her family there's an interesting subplot with some other boxers in the gym i think they they give us a wide variety of different stories to follow over the course of this but largely it's uh, the relationship between maggie and frankie as they go on this journey and I mean, in a way, it ends up I, – I think the, the, the way the movie tricks you is it, you think that it's Maggie's journey. You think that it's her journey to kind of become this next great boxer. But because of this accident that happens to her, um, it leaves her basically in a state where she can't do anything anymore. She's uh, essentially you know, paralyzed from the neck down and it then and then that's when it switches back to really look you realize that this is really Frankie's journey as this as this boxer who really was kind of afraid to commit to bringing his his um the people that he was training up because he was, didn't think they were quite ready, and then he kind of he he finally changed with her and started pushing her into these different uh, matches and everything, and saw that she was ready. But then it was kind of the relationship, and it was his journey that we're actually following over the course of the film. So that was a, a really nice way of looking at these two characters. But then I was like, well, who's the antagonist in this film? This isn't really a clear cut. Um, by-the-books screenplay written where you've got the protagonist who wants to achieve something. You've got the antagonist who's trying to stop them from getting it. This is really kind of this beautiful sports drama that unfolds where you don't necessarily... I mean, you you have antagonistic forces, don't get me wrong, but there is no real clear-cut bad guy, bad force that you're fighting. There is the, uh, the blue bear boxer that she ends up fighting later but she doesn't come into it she it's not like she's this consistent force over the course of it so it really ends up just being this relationship film as these characters are all growing together and and changing each other over the course of the story
1: yeah i i absolutely agree and i and i think you're right because of the the sort of the the story's a little bit bifurcated right i mean it really um it changes at the hands of the blue isn't the blue bolt isn't that her thing the blue
0: the blue the blue bear bear? is it the the blue bear
1: um it it really changes because of of her i mean she's she is a dirty fighter and she takes a pot shot at our at our you know our hero our boxing heroine uh and and, but but as soon as the as that changes i mean you want that to be the story of redemption and i think at that point that's when i lock into the film and I, i my hopes uh start their roller coaster journey right because at every turn i want this to be a story about or i th- i think this is a story about her healing and her coming back and her going back into the ring and her taking care of business and taking down the blue bear, right? You, you, right. you really, you instinctively, because we're so ingrained in this story type, this archetype, that this is her journey and that third act twist is going to be her, um, you know, her point of of redemption and she's going to get vengeance and she's going to win the day, and she and she doesn't, uh, yeah, and and. I, I had not i mean i 'm still putting the pieces together when you just said uh, when you just said this really is eastwood 's story, it really is his story as the trainer coming to terms with the fact that he 's already lost the relationship of his of his biological daughter mm-hmm. and he lives every scene every day in terror that he 's going to lose this relationship that has developed this powerful relationship that has developed with his new sort of adopted boxing daughter. Uh, that he has to come to terms with that loss at the end of this film um, is it, it is an amazing exploration in the power of storytelling and and I, I mean I I have an unbelievable amount of respect for Haggis for getting this getting this so elegantly portrayed um, from word to screen. Yeah, it's it's unreal.
0: It's and it's it's touching because you can see that relationship. I mean, even when Frankie is dealing with Willie. At the beginning, right. the boxer that he's trained, uh, he is too, he, he is afraid. Of giving Willie that title shot because he just doesn't think Willie's quite ready. Even though we all know Willie is probably ready, Frankie's just not quite ready to face the loss again, right, you know, and right. lose somebody. Uh, but because of that, he ends up losing Willie because he is afraid to commit. And then, and then the whole thing with Maggie, that relationship—it just—it's so touching the way that that develops and the way that changes.
1: And and so in that respect, Andy, I mean, I think about this as the antagonist or the antagonistic force. I mean, is it fair to say that that the the major obstacle that that uh, you know eastwood's character that that frankie is is looking to overcome is his own fear of loss he he comes up against it again and again it's like the monster in this film that we never see but we know is there and that is the redemption at the end of the film when he's able to walk out of that hospital and and is essentially a free man
0: yeah, and walk out of his life entirely. Right, right. Yeah. He
1: just disappears. And where does he go? He goes to this place that, that shares such a powerful memory between him and, uh, and Maggie. Maggie.
0: Yeah. It's touching. I, um, yeah. Yeah, I can't remember what you asked me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, it was I this was idea of the,
1: anti- of, of the antagonist being an antagonistic oh, yeah, yeah. force. right? I, How know, do you it, approach that from a screenwriting perspective?
0: Well it's it's really tricky. I mean you can have kind of, you know, the the antagonist as self. Like there's that yeah. other part of yourself that is the antagonistic force. Um you could look at this where uh Frankie and Maggie could be I mean Frankie might be the protagonist and Maggie's the antagonist and and because there it certainly starts that way. But they kind of come together it 's just you know how does that resolve and and i don 't think that 's it either, so I think that it may be and this is just one of those you know the, uh, one of the uh, the guys in my in the screenwriting department over here, Bill True always uh, calls these ninja screenwriter nin, the ninja screenwriters, and he would probably classify Paul Haggis as one of these ninja screenwriters somebody who can write really well where this character is their own antagonist. And it doesn't necessarily fit within the conventions, but the story works so brilliantly on every level that, um, that he gets away with it. And he's able to actually effectively do that, where Frankie does have all that antagonistic force within himself and is actually, that's part of his character arc. And that's part of the growth that he needs to go through as a character and actually find the right path in order to get through the pain that, uh, that has kind of locked him in. Over the course of his life, you know, getting past the issues with his daughter, getting uh, past all these issues that he's had with uh, with Maggie, and actually finally moving past all of it.
1: Yeah, I, I I love the, how he phrases that, Ninja screenwriter. That's really a that, that's what it feels like. It feels like a very natural term, yeah, right. uh, Because this is such a a really sneaky, subversive script. Uh, in that regard, it, that that we never quite know who we're who we're addressing, who we're dealing with. Well, um,
0: and I think a lot of that also is the is the way that he plays with the subs the subplots that I already mentioned. You have this really interesting story of of danger, um, the uh, the wannabe boxer who's fairly simple, who is not very bright, and but he you know he's there he wants to train cuz he wants to be the welterweight champion of the world.
1: This is and, played by a uh, danger played by Jay Barrowshell who's really right. terrific.
0: Yeah, he's great in the role. Yeah. And uh, I think this was the first time I may have uh, seen him in something. Yeah. But he as as Morgan Freeman uh, who's narrating the film says Danger is all heart; he is nothing but heart, and then, on the flip side, you have Charel played by Anthony Mackey, who has no heart but is a really good boxer and it 's the danger um, not not the character, but the actual danger that lies in, when you 're either all heart or no heart. You have to have some balance in in that in boxing to make to really be effective and You can see how that plays out between in the subplot between danger and Charlle as You know, Shirell is just really just a a bully and Danger just doesn't have he's not in a place where he can get the experience, although he slowly starts learning over the course of the film. And I think that that's a really interesting subplot when you actually look at how that evolves with Maggie, who is is a good balance between the, the two, because, yes, she is has a lot of heart. But she also is completely dedicated to the sport. And she's dedicated to learning from uh, Clint Eastwood because she sees him as the best. She's, she's dedicated to just him. She's not going to bail on him like some of the other people have. And, and she's just, um, she just believes in herself. And she's incredibly skilled. And it's a great way to kind of portray um, you know, her place in this sport when you look at the different, uh, the different aspects of it.
1: Yeah, I uh, that's a that's a nice way to put it. There are a couple of of subplots uh that I do have issues with. There are two in particular and and I one of them I I think I'm I'm not struggling with. The other one I'm definitely struggling with. The the one I'm not struggling with is the is the the relationship that Frankie has with the the priest. Uh I he's the most useful pr- useless priest I've ever seen on screen. Totally useless. <laughs> and and even in the sort of comic Relationship, you know as they he's Frankie always goes to church he goes to church every day for mass that 's sort of a character thing, uh, and they have these little things he drives the the priest nuts he drives him nuts because he 's always questioning god he 's questioning the relationship of God and man he 's questioning the structure of of biblical uh, biblical teachings, and uh, okay, it's it's sort of comical, and I, I I sort of get it, but when it when the the push comes to shove, and he is and and Frankie is really broken, and he needs he needs. We need to see some sort of a turn. Uh, the priest is completely useless. Like, it ends up being giving the worst advice that you would get. I mean, it's just non-advice. It gives non-advice. It's a, it's a horribly written scene. It's a scene that is, <laughs> I just find, a waste of space in the film. And I think that that relationship, I think it, it's not necessary for me. Well, Are, I, what do you think?
0: I, I don't, I, I guess, I mean, it definitely does provide some comic relief that relationship. I don't think that that the last bit of advice is completely horrible. I actually think it's it's an interesting just insight into looking at it because I think that uh you know, Frankie I think probably for the from the story perspective, you know, they needed to um just emphasize how how wrong it would be even to to go and and uh and put her down. Uh, you know, uh, so to speak, like uh, her father did to their dog. Mm-hmm. Um, how wrong it would be to do that in in God's eyes. Um, as somebody who goes to church as regularly as he does, because as the uh, as the priest says, you know he he never sees anybody. Come to church that often, unless they have a lot of uh, a lot of sins that they 're feeling like they need to atone for, and right. clearly there 's some issue with his daughter that left their relationship completely broken so you know I think that it 's a useful relationship in my eyes i 've never really had a problem with it. I've I haven't really thought about it so much, but uh, you know the way that you put it, I guess I can see your point. That that last little bit of advice is like, well, yeah, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Do we need to actually uh, have that told to us? Because you know, knowing that he's a religious person, we would expect that he would find that. To be a completely wrong decision to make
1: because we're already seeing him struggle with it. For me, it becomes a show don't tell kind of experience. We've already seen it. We now we just put the words in the priest in the in the priest's mouth, and coming from an he's sort of an unreliable spiritual figure because he's always the angry one, um, and and so he he is no safe harbor, um, and and so that's the problem I I have with it. Um, I'm not sure well, what it stands I- for.
0: Well, and that's an interesting point, because it, perhaps it would have been a stronger um, uh, conversation had we seen the priest actually giving some sermons and known, hey, okay, so Clint Eastwood is always giving this guy grief, but this guy actually knows what he's talking about. He actually is a very good yeah. priest. He actually um, really has a strong belief and is a, is a good person to talk to, even though Frankie's always kind of, you know, just having these uh, these... Backward conversations about you know is it one god or is it yeah yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Three, because you know, then we would have
1: stuff. we would have experience with him being a safe harbor with that church right. being a place of safety and sanctity and and uh, instead we just get it it 's a place that is is sort of lampooned as a place that exists of of frustration and sarcasm and and right. not
0: safety but uh, would it have worked like say say that that, that subplot wasn 't there? Would the story, would that moment have worked if if Frankie had that same conversation with Scrap, for example, and actually talked to him about Maggie has asked me to do this? What do you think? And Scrap is the one who said, you know, it's wrong, you can't do that. And Frankie talks about, you know, you know, I I, I know that it would be wrong to to kill her, but leaving her alive is killing her and all that because I think his side of it is pretty powerful. And I just wonder when you if maybe say
1: his, you mean scraps or Frankie's? No, Frankie's. I think
0: Frankie's side of the conversation when he's talking to the priest. Yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty strong. But maybe if he had that with Scrap, it would have worked better because that would have been a more meaningful conversation with somebody who's more tied into the story.
1: Well, think about that, right? Because Scrap is the representation of the heart of Frankie's life, right? He is Scrap is the beating heart of the gym. He is the beating heart of, you know, he's he's the guy who keeps a rain on the sanity on, you know, the, what this place is. And even though they have their sort of sarcastic jibes between one another, they are never like, you never get a sense that they are meant from a point of antagonism. Right. I mean, there's the relationship they have is very special and that's the relationship. I think that you would, you would come to expect comments like, you know, that, but at the same time, and because I've only seen it once, um, the conversation that he does have with scraps uh, what was scrap's perspective when they 're standing in that incredibly perfectly lit locker room <laughs> he 's having that conversation uh, what is what was scrap's perspective i 've gotten everything tied up well
0: that was that was uh, i, I don 't remember if he was if he ever really specifically brought that up with scrap at that point, but I know that 's where he apologized to scrap for saying, "Hey, I never should have said that it was your fault." And scrap. That's right, like, that's damn right. That's damn right. right, you shouldn't and uh yeah. and, and they kind of they they make amends and everything. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, I, you know, I think you just put your finger on it. Why? I'm frustrated by it. And I think I I like the movie much better, imagining that conversation happening with Scraps.
0: Well, and actually, it works a lot better. I, I'm selling myself. I, I think you've sold me on it, too, because, <laughs> because think about it. I mean, Scrap is the audience surrogate of the story. He's yeah. the one narrating this whole thing. I mean, we find out at the end he's actually writing this letter to Frankie's daughter. Yes. But... Um, over the course of the story, all this narration, I mean, it's very much Shawshank Redemption type of thing, where he is our main character that is telling us this story. We are seeing this whole thing through his eyes. If if Frankie had this conversation with Scrap, it would have been like he's having the conversation with us, trying to decide if uh, you know what is right and what is wrong, and that could have tied us in even in, in an even stronger way.
1: Yep, 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 absolutely. I think we've just uh, made a significant improvement in the film. Let me go on to my second one. All right. And this is the one I'm struggling with. Uh, And you already said it. The narration narration is great. I actually—this is one where I, I think the narration is really great. What I was struggling with was the repetition of the issues of the letters with Eastwood's Daughter. Hmm. Right? Uh, every time we see the letters, we see the letters a number of times to the film. He takes the letters, he files them away. He puts them in the in the box and puts them away. And and I, f- I found myself really fatigued with that storyline. I found it sort of a distraction from the things I was interested in. And... So by the end of the film, I was I was just really, like, that was another one. That and the priest were the two pieces that I didn't need. I already knew enough. Like, they've already demonstrated that he has an issue with his daughter. She's estranged and won't talk to her. I didn't need to see the letters over and over again, and I was kind of frustrated that we kept having that. I got that this was a relationship between that she that, that uh, Maggie was a surrogate daughter for him, and that relationship was very special. It made the third act so powerful, um, and I, I was really frustrated. That we kept going back to these letters, even in the third act when we were really heavily into, you know, what are we going to do about Maggie? And, and and here we have more letters. He goes home and he's got more letters returned to sender. So I didn't need that. The reason I'm struggling is because the last two minutes of the film we discovered that the narration is the narration of uh, Scraps writing a letter to Frankie's daughter. And so I am confused upon myself. Uh, what? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? like in in some respects, in order for that narration to work, do we need all the letters? Do we need some of the letters? Did they do enough uh, enough diligence in in convincing us of the the story of the estrangement of the daughter early on um, that we could have gotten rid of so many of the letters and the things I, to, to still make the narration pay off? I don't know.
0: Well, what I do like about it, because I, I guess I'll say it, it's never bothered me. Um, what I do like about it is that it shows that this is a man who really needs to mend that relationship. He has been trying. I mean, the film takes place over about, what, a year and a half, yeah, I think at one point they yeah, say. Yeah,
1: something like that. She goes from, what, 31 to 30? 30...
0: Yeah, and I think they say that, you know, the last year and a half or yeah. something. So it's been about a year and a half, two years, something like that. Um We see that this is a father who is consistently trying to uh, connect with his daughter, and she's just not responding at all. So I do like that they, um, they give us that, that they allow us to see that he is... Working to to mend that relationship, it's not something that we just see once. It's something that we see repeated times. So for me, I think it's it's uh, fairly important, and I found it kind of an essential part of the story. That being said, um, I was never a big fan of the fact that the narration ends up being the letter writing. Like oh, when it got to the end. Tell me why ending, about
1: that? That's, that's really interesting.
0: I, I don't know. It's just it was it's, it, it's one of those things because. Uh, I always struggle when I have narration in a film. And we could create a whole subgenre of movies on our, on our page, create another right, right, list right. Of, of movies with narration that ends up being a, a letter being written to somebody. Because then you go back and it's like, well, how much of that actually makes sense as a letter to somebody? You know, It's like a lot of the stuff that he was saying, I don't know if it would actually make sense in the letter. It would be
1: a fun and, exercise to go back and actually transcribe only the, the narration.
0: Right. And, and see, write it as a letter and just see how weird it is. Exactly. That's, and that's always the issue for me. I mean, it's it's a great uh, device, I guess. But for me, it's one that... It's an easy device. It's an easy device, yes. Because otherwise you get to the end and it's like, it, it, did they put it in there because the writer's just struggling going, well, how can we end it with this narration? Should that Should it tie into something or what? And for me, it was just never something that worked as well as I wish it could have.
1: Yeah, you know, I I I do agree with you there, and I think that's that may be part of my challenge is that you know I generally am anti narration in general. Um, the fact that it's a letter, I didn't, you know, I I didn't find myself as hung up on that because I was so hung up on the the letters in the first place, and that the narration sort of rationalizes all these letters um, for for me or attempts to rationalize all these letters, um, it, you know, creates its own. Issues And that's why I'm sort of hung up on it. But now that you say it, I mean, I, I you're absolutely right. I, I think it's, it is troublesome. Uh, and I wonder, I mean, the, the letter is, it's an easy out, but do we necessarily need to know that, uh, you know, Scraps is writing a letter? Can't, is, you know, how much, how much do we really need to see this narration justified in, in movie space,
0: in the movie world? Right. Well, I mean, only, only in the sense that they've established this subplot with his daughter and the letters. In a way, I guess you could say it, it kind of helps create the, uh, a closure for, a sense of closure for that subplot. But, again, you're right. I don't know if it was necessary. I just think that's the justification for it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so that's the, that's the script. Generally, I, I thought the structure of, of the film was fantastic.
0: Well, and I, I think something interesting about it that uh, Paul Haggis actually said when Clint Eastwood came on board and, and said he wanted to direct this. Um, you know, uh, Paul showed up with his notepad ready to kind of take notes as to how he could do some rewrites, and 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 uh, he said to Clint, "So, what do you want? What do you want to do? How should we rework it?" And Clint's, "No, I like it like this. I think we'll just go with this." And Paul was just like, "Well, <laughs> you, you realize that's just my first draft." And Clint's like, yeah, that's okay. I I think that you I think you hit everything here, and I think we'll just make this one. It's you know he liked that it, it was ragged, that it was imperfect, and that's something that he tends to do. That was the same thing with Unforgiven. He said we're going to make this movie warts and all, and uh, I I think that may play into some of the issues that we're having here, where those were some of the the imperfections within the script, and I think Clint Eastwood seize those, and maybe he was even aware of them, but was just felt that the story like they worked for the story even if they were a a little a a little uh rough and uh went forward with it
1: yeah that's fascinating i didn't catch that Uh, this was a first draft production yeah Uh, i know well well played Yeah,
0: yeah no kidding no kidding
1: uh okay so how about eastwood's performance you know we've talked a little bit about uh eastwood and eastwood directing eastwood how does this hold up for you
0: really well i think this is just a a rock solid performance of his in a good body of work i mean we've talked actually about a lot of clint eastwood films uh, in this show now that i look back on it uh quite a quite a <laughs> lot uh, not ever quite yeah. intentional but we really have hit a, hit a good number of them um i just always enjoy watching him i i think older clint eastwood there was a period in the uh, uh after unforgiven before uh before this, I think there's a, a lot of rough patches in there, but I think he really started hitting his stride again here uh maybe i 'm not a huge fan of Mystic River, which came out the year before, although um I know it it, it was received quite well and I think that you know he's done pretty well uh, since i mean there 's definitely been ups and downs he 's just one of those filmmakers who 's got a lot of ups and downs in his uh Films that he makes. But I think he's always making challenging films. And performing, I think he does a great job when he's directing himself. I think he does a wonderful job here. I think he's got the right mentality as Frankie. It reminds me a lot of his character in Gran Torino. Um, And, I mean, yeah, I I think he works really well as this this closed-off character who has to go through this... um, uh, this character growth in order to help Maggie get to where she needs to be only to then have to kind of grow past the idea of letting her go once he's finally attached to her. And it's kind of like the whole thing, like now that he has her, he's going to have to let her go. And uh, it's, it's a pretty powerful story and I think he does it really well.
1: I think in, in terms of his, uh, his uh, performance as an actor, uh, when he opens the door, this is, ironically, this is the this is a piece that I I found particularly touching. When he opens the door the last time to his house, uh, and he looks down and he sees the letters, and this is after he's he's ad- trying to adjust to this new world with Maggie in, in the hospital. Uh, the look on his face and the red around his eyes and just the way he moves through the sequence with without any words is about as vulnerable as I think I've ever seen Clint Eastwood in film. Uh, And I found myself just really choking up at that sequence, watching this guy come to terms with this terror that is so real Um, in a film about a sport where people put themselves in a ring and deal with terror. That is very, very real.
0: Yeah, absolutely. uh,
1: And so I was, I found myself really moved by his performance here. I thought he did a fantastic job.
0: Yeah. Well, what about good old Morgan?
1: Oh, right. What's not to love? <laughs> I wanted to like pull up a cot. Like I want to like bunk with Morgan. <laughs> He's like, so awesome. Uh, I thought he did a fantastic job again. You know, I've already sort of uh, laid out my case for Morgan. He's the heart and, and soul of that gym and and he is the anchor to uh so much of the of, of this story. He's the anchor between the A story and the B stories that 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 live in the gym and and uh you know, he provides the north star for these other people these you know for as you mentioned you you know between Mike Coulter and Jay Baruchel and Anthony Mackey and Michael Peña um you know who deliver these wonderful sort of uh B story performances that allow us to see what the ecosystem looks like what this organism looks like of the gym um and and uh, I I got I thought he just did a, a wonderful job socks and all
0: <laughs> whether they're holy or not <laughs> <laughs> There's sleeping socks and this is, uh, yeah, he won the Oscar for best supporting actor for this. And I believe this was his uh, first Oscar.
1: Well deserved. Well deserved. Yeah. Well deserved. Uh, okay. Did you have other comments about Morgan?
0: No, I just, I love him. I think he's brilliant in this. Um, I just, oh, I do always find it shocking that uh, it took so long for him to actually uh, get an Oscar. It's kind, of, <laughs> it yeah. kind of a shame, you know, I think that uh, you know he was first nominated back in 87 for Street Smart for a supporting role, and then Driving Miss Daisy, Shawshank Redemption, and then he finally won a Million Dollar Baby, then he was nominated again for Invictus. So he's only been nominated five times, but he just, yeah. you know, he's one of those guys who just seems like he's brilliant in everything.
1: He is. He's brilliant in everything. He's just a phenomenally talented guy. So I uh, really enjoyed him, and I really, really enjoyed hillary swank
0: mm. you know i think that um anytime annette benning is getting ready to make a film that is going to be considered for an oscar that she should just check hillary's schedule and make sure that hillary is not doing something also because i swear every time annette benning does a great performance in a film and likely should win an oscar hillary swank sweeps in and uh, takes the oscar home she okay. did that uh in 99 uh, with um uh, uh boys don't cry and then she did it here uh, opposite uh, uh her when and that Benning was in being julia so yeah hillary swank is uh just stunning in this film she is so good she's she is the heart and the and the skill like she does that so well she plays that eager to learn passionate character who's just excited to kind of do what it is that she loves to do
1: What I love so much about her performance is that, you know, she really does find that balance between, um, you know, man, girl got fit for this film, holy Mm -hmm. cow, Uh, between just muscle and brawn um, and, you know, her sort of background and the way she speaks and the way, you know, we characterize the rest of her family makes her come off as dumb. Uh, You know, she is, she's just like all heart and muscle, but not a lot of smarts. And yet, as her career kind of begins to move forward and we get these little hints of her, you know, buying a house for her mom, her a completely ungrateful family, ridiculous, yeah. ridiculous, uh, beautifully, beautifully portrayed uh, <laughs> by uh, Margot Martindale, uh, you know, I, I think when we finally get to know who she really is, it's when, uh, you know, mom and family are... By her bedside, asking her to sign the uh, transfer of of assets. I, I guess the um, uh, what is it? The attorney. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the form? You know, when you when you give away your uh, rights,
0: or you uh, say,
1: what is it called?
0: The, it's like a I don't know power of attorney. Power form? of attorney.
1: I'm going to say it's that. Sure. Some sort of power <laughs> of attorney, so, so she can, so the mom can control the assets. And uh, when she. Drops the pen out of her mouth and says, "Who are you? What happened to you?" Mm-hmm. Uh, we get we get to see who Hillary Swank or who this Maggie Fitzgerald really is, and that it took us, you know, two hours to get to that point made uh, her journey. I think really rewarding to watch. I I was so moved by her performance. Every turn,
0: yeah. And it's it's a great moment also because, you know, like we said, she's created this surrogate uh, relationship with Clint Eastwood, kind of as a surrogate father. But I mean, this is this point where Frankie is trying to protect her and is just like, why don't you leave the paperwork and I'll read it to her later. And Maggie is the one who says, you know, all due respect, this doesn't concern you and and asks him to leave. And that's just like she really does step up right here and is ready to kind of face her mother finally and have this conversation with her mother and it's it is very powerful and it's heartbreaking too because she has been such a giving daughter you know buying this house and doing whatever she could to try to take care of her mother and her family and this is where she really is you know sees exactly what uh level they are at and is just is ready to kind of cut the ties as hard as it is for her
1: yeah, it was it was really moving, and I think it, it shows a—it's it, one of the really neat sort of narrative techniques when you make—when you break a character down physically so that they are—so that this, you know, she is unable to move, she is uh, unable to breathe on her own, and you make her— uh you you allow us to discover just how strong she really is i mean we got that same thing with diving bell and the butterfly you know you you break this character down and only then do you really realize their strength and and i think that was such a that was so well played here yeah it's beautiful yeah uh anybody else in particular you want to talk about in the cast besides the big three
0: I think they're all great. I think everyone does their role really well. Um, the only other person that I think was uh, just worth giving a shout out to was uh, Benito Martinez, who pops up in this. Who uh, he had uh, uh, been in uh, uh, one of my favorite TV shows, The Shield, for a long time, and oh. it was nice to kind of it was nice to kind of see him. Uh, he's he's just in it so briefly as the uh, as the manager of uh, Billy the Blue Bear. But uh, it's just like, oh, hey, look. So there he is. <laughs> That's good. Like old yeah. home week. <laughs> That's right. That's right.
1: Uh-huh. Uh, in terms of, you know, we, we talked about Eastwood uh, as a performer, but in terms of Eastwood directing Eastwood, uh, any comments from the perspective as a director?
0: Uh, as From his directing, yeah. how he did it? Yeah. This is a, I think that... Um, you know, he chose a really interesting palette for this film that is very dark. It is very uh, bleak, um, desaturated. Everything about it seems really just kind of have the, the the color sucked out of it. And I think it works really well for the actual story that is being told here. There's a lot of shadow play all through this film. It's just some beautiful compositions all through. I think he worked really well uh, with his cinematographer to create this dark look that um just i mean it, i find it very almost haunting tom stern was the dp and i just i really love the overall look that they did uh and clean eastwood did the music also for this and i think that he created just a very simple theme that works really well to kind of get across the uh the um uh the power of the um the place that this man is at at the time that this girl comes into his life
1: it was, uh, you know, speaking of the cinematography, I, one of the things I thought was really fantastic was just how noir the, the film feels in its most yeah. sensitive moments. Right. Uh, the way they... the, the the pieces I found myself looking forward to the most, the sequences I was looking forward to the most were the, um, you know, were the night sequences with scraps in the in the gym, you know, when they had these, or the early morning sequences where they played with really sharp light, these hard shadows uh, that, that played so beautifully across these, in, these just iconic faces. I mean, Morgan Freeman and Clint Eastwood, their faces uh, have so much character just etched in them that when you see this light just, you know, strike across their faces. I, uh, I found myself really moved by them. It's, it is f- truly photographic.
0: Yeah. Um, it, it's it's really stunning. And, you know, this is a film... I mean, Clint Eastwood... Anyone who's kind of listened to any stories about how Clint Eastwood makes a movie knows that he is just just so fast he's a speedy speedy filmmaker and not to the point like he's rushing he just he knows what he wants when he gets it he moves on he doesn't keep doing take after take trying to i mean he's like the antithesis to david fincher right yeah the way that he does this he shot this in 38 days and five of those days were half days there was no overtime uh one of the producers said uh, on day one the call sheet had a 10 a.m call time and that means like when everyone's supposed to get to set the, and the ten fifteen 15 uh, first shot is when they were supposed to get their first shot. And you never see that. 15 minutes to basically set up and get a first shot. That's like an unheard of, uh, ridiculously short amount of time to actually get prepped to get your first shot off. But he said that by 10-03, they already had their first shot, and they were moved to the new camera position by 10-08. Wow. So <laughs> he's just, he is efficient. He just knows what he needs, and he just goes in and gets it.
1: That's fantastic. Well, you know, he's an old man. It's very efficient. I think I've lost you. I think you're just not there. I'm going to keep talking, though. Anything? No? Are you still there?
0: I'm, I, I hear you now.
1: Oh, yeah. You went away.
0: Whoa, well, you're way behind.
1: I'll pause. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Can you hear me right now? Yes. Okay, are we caught up?
0: Are we caught up? I
1: think we're caught up.
0: Count one, two, three, go. One, two, three, go. One, two, three, go. Okay. <laughs> that was really weird. I heard a snap, like like in the middle of your word. It was like you flipped a switch.
1: Wow. I don't know what to say about that. I don't either. All right. Uh, I don't even remember where... I I called Clint Eastwood an old man, very efficient. And then uh, there was nothing after that.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Where do you want okay. to go from there? Let's do... Um, Let's do, uh, so you already talked about the DP. I think, Joel- oh, music, music. Wait. Okay. Yeah. The music was amazing. Yeah. The music was really great. I was, I was surprised. I was super surprised to see Clint Eastwood had done the music. I found like it, it jumped a little bit all over the place. Tonally. You know, I, I, you know, one point it's a, you know, several points throughout the film, it's this lilting kind of guitar. Uh, and I just was, I, I thought it was super moving, um, and not incredibly consistent. No, uh, from scene to scene, it didn't. It didn't scream. This is a unified score to me, but it really worked for the pictures on screen.
0: Yeah, that's something I find with Clint Eastwood's music generally. I think he works his music really well to fit the scenes, but they don't necessarily feel like a cohesive whole. Right. And sometimes I have a problem with that. This is one of those times where I don't really have a problem with that.
1: Yeah, I certainly didn't. I, I thought he was really, really great. Yeah, Surp- yeah. I was surprised. I was really surprised to see him uh, having done the score to this. Didn't expect it. Um, who else? Production well,
0: design. Yeah, production design. Henry Bumstead uh, is a name that's been around forever. I think he uh, just creates a great look to this rundown gym and just the, the whole world of this boxing within this kind of dark, shadowy world.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I felt like um, it, it's one of those things. It was just sparse enough to feel um, legitimate. Yes. You know, and in terms yeah. of like just general set decoration, Richard Goddard, like I found myself actually thinking this, this makes sense to me. This feels right. This gym feels right to me. This is a well-tread place, well-trod place.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and then, and, uh, and Joel Cox was the editor. He's worked with Eastwood for a very long time. And uh, he was nominated for an Oscar for this, I think, uh, rightfully so. I think it's it's cut really well. The pacing of it works uh, nicely in the quieter scenes. It definitely works, uh, you know, it has a much faster pace in the boxing scenes. I think that it just, it flows uh, very smoothly all the way through uh, because of Joel's editing.
1: You know, the boxing scenes are interesting to me because I never once got the, was uh, inspired to compare this to Rocky, yeah. Right. You know what I'm saying? I never once had that sense that this is a this is a boxing movie and it's supposed to have a certain look and feel. Right. And I thought that was really great. Uh it it still gave me the excitement, the thrill of the uh of of the sport. Um uh, and yet it was approached with a, a, I guess a greater sense of elegance uh in the ring that these these women were, you know, it, it it approached it with a I I think a feminine hand you know it, it felt really softer uh, in terms of the approach to to cutting it was not as fast it was not as uh, jarring I think not as adrenaline kind of thrust um,
0: yeah it didn't it didn't feel like you needed to have that uh, raging bull yeah yeah editing style that was just so in your face that actually it actually felt. Uh, it well, it felt just more dramatic. It, the whole thing felt uh, more dramatic, and maybe that's because it wasn't trying to be just the next great sports movie, kind of a la Rocky. Yeah. It really was just a, a, a story of these characters that happened to be in the world of boxing.
1: Yeah, and that's that's a that's something you don't know until the end. That it's not. This is not the next great sports movie. That's still. when We talk about an hour later. I'm still blown away <laughs> by that twist. Um, so, um, anything else before we talk about how it did?
0: I don't know. I think that's it. Other than we haven't mentioned that it is based on the book uh, or some of the stories from the book, Rope Burns' Stories from the Corner, which uh, is by FX Tool, which is the pen name of boxing trainer Jerry Boyd, who um, who wrote this. Uh, it uh, Paul Haggis uh, adapted the story and pulled some other elements of it uh, from the book. And then uh, and FX Tool ended up writing, I think, another novel – um, called Pound for Pound, that was released posthumously. Uh, he died in two thousand two, and I guess uh, AMC is actually looking at adapting the uh, the stories from Pound for Pound into a uh, dramatic series. So we'll oh, see if wow. that actually happens. Yeah, set in the world of boxing.
1: AMC is doing such good work lately. That'll be interesting. It,
0: it could be an interesting show. I mean, yeah. if, it's, if, it, if it's this type of story, I think that it could be a really interesting world to look into.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that. That's great. Yeah. Okay, so how did it
0: do? Uh, this film did really well for itself. I mean, if you look at boxing movies, this is actually the fourth highest grossing one, only behind Rocky, Rocky Three, and Rocky IV, um, which is pretty interesting. Uh, Rocky IV is actually the top of the heap, which surprises me, but uh, I guess that's how things go. It, I mean, it's it, it definitely uh, is more popular than a lot of other boxing movies that are out there. This film uh, cost thirty million dollars to make another thirty million to uh, for all the prints and advertising, so sixty million is what it went into, and that 's adjusted uh, for today 's dollars about seventy three point eight million dollars. This film ended up making at the box office just over a hundred about one hundred point five million dollars and internationally made one hundred and thirty one point five million dollars um, all told uh, it did pretty well for itself. And yeah. when you actually look at the adjusted profit per finished minute, it, it ended up making about $1.5 million per finished minute adjusted. Wow. Yeah, That's pretty good.
1: That is, that is, and so uh, the awards. Yeah. What are the awards that it ended up winning?
0: It, in, for the Oscars, it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, and Best Supporting Actor. Um, it was, Clint Eastwood was nominated for Best Actor. He didn't win. That went to, um, uh, for Ray, it went to, uh, to Jamie Foxx. And uh, then Best Adapted Screenplay, Paul Haggis was nominated, and Best Film Editing was nominated. And then, you know, a slew of other awards. This film was very well received, very high marks from the critics. From the audiences, I think this was just a, an overall very well-received film.
1: Well, it was a beautiful film. And as somebody who had not seen it these last 11 years, it was a treat. And I call it a a, a gift to be able to sit down and really enjoy this film in one sitting without being spoiled. I felt like it just came out.
0: I am uh, so thrilled that you managed to not be spoiled. That's know. The, you know. That's the fear I have with films like this, when it has such a huge twist— of having heard what, that there either is a twist or what the twist actually is. So I'm glad that somehow you managed to avoid that.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, and, and now that I know at the end, she does, in fact, see dead people. <laughs> Let's uh, say we rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash The Next Reel, everybody. You can see our stack rankings of awesome movies that we've talked about. And uh, you should sign up and friend us, and then we'll see if our movies match your movies. And then we'll sing a song about it. Just like Mother Neil Patrick not. Harris. <laughs> Hashtag <not>. Oscar nod. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. You ready? Yes. All right. Million Dollar Baby or Kind Hearts and Coronets?
1: Million Dollar Baby.
0: Absolutely. Million Dollar Baby or 12 Monkeys?
1: Million Dollar Baby.
0: Yeah. I love 12 Monkeys, but Million Dollar Baby is uh, hits me more emotionally. hmm Getting tough now. Million Dollar Baby or The Exorcist?
1: Million Dollar Baby.
0: Yeah. I think I'd do Million Dollar Baby. Million Dollar Baby? Oh. Or Brazil?
1: <laughs> oh, wow. See, now I'm trying, to, I'm trying to meter my emotional response to, to Million Dollar Baby.
0: Right, right.
1: Uh, since I just saw it, I am still sort of, I'm in the afterglow.
0: Right. It's that's, and that's how it goes often with yeah. films after we talk about them. Yeah. It's easy to uh, dismiss films we talked about several years ago.
1: But but in this case, I'm going to use my best judgment. I think I'm going to say Brazil.
0: I am too. All right. That's a hard one though. That
1: was really that was hard. That was definitely Million hard.
0: Million Dollar Baby or Close Encounters of the Third Kind?
1: Million Dollar Baby. I really I'm a 7.
0: Ah, close encounters I uh, I don't know. I'm a little wishy-washy on this one. But I feel like I should pick close encounters.
1: But how much? <laughs> if you're if you're a 2 or higher then it's it, it goes close encounters. If it's a or if it's 2 or lower then it's close encounters. If it's a 3 or higher we have to rock paper
0: scissors. I'm not quite sure I understand your numbering scheme.
1: <laughs> well, it's it's just a weighted scale. It's a teeter-totter.
0: Yeah, right.
1: So if I'm a seven and you're a three, then we're balanced.
0: Oh, I see. I see. That's where the three comes in. Yeah. I, man, Close Encounters. I mean, one of the best sci-fis out there. I love that film. Million Dollar Baby certainly has more of the emotional emotional draw to it. We
1: have gotten in trouble for misranking Close Encounters in the past. We have. we have gotten an email that we <laughs> we have not done justice by close encounters in the past
0: and i'm feeling like I need to go with close encounters on this one. I just feel like I love million dollar baby, but I feel like close encounters is uh, like just over my life the one that will you know, I, well that doesn't even make sense they're they're both gonna always <laughs> stick with me
1: i'll give, it to, close, I'll give it to you i 'll give it to you you feel you you sound like a two a two. <laughs> yes, a two okay.
0: Uh, all right. I do. So right. does that mean Close Encounters? Yeah. Okay. I get confused with this numbering scheme of yours. No. Oh, it, it, it'll oh, it'll come goodness. to you. You'll get it. Okay. Million Give Dollar Baby. <laughs> okay. Or The Matrix.
1: Oh. um, Million Dollar Baby,
0: I think. Mm. God, The Matrix is it's great, amazing.
1: Yeah, I know. But I, I there is nowhere in The Matrix where... I I got that third act twist that affected me so. Well, I like, agree. There was nothing in the, in the Matrix. The Matrix was brilliant. It was brilliant. It was a, a it was a pinnacle of filmmaking of its style. And I was excited and jubilant and adrenaline rushed. But when I finished watching Million Dollar Baby, I felt like I had connected with with cinema in a new way. That yeah. is it. That was a terrific uh, example of the use of the art. And craft
0: Alright All I right, You sold me Million dollar baby it is <laughs> Million dollar baby or aliens
1: I feel like my logic holds
0: For million dollar baby Yeah But aliens man I know man <laughs> uh, Okay I'll give you million dollar baby Million Dollar Baby or Up in the Air? I would do Million Dollar Baby. Yeah. All right, number sixteen out of one hundred and seventy-three. Straight to the top straight twenty. To the
1: top twenty. That's uh, that's a good place for this film
0: to be. I think so. I, I you know I, I feel a little guilty about it being bo- above Aliens, uh, but you know I'm going to be okay with it. I I'll think you need. To,
1: I think you need to be okay with it.
0: I am okay with it.
1: This was, a, I mean, Aliens was a great film, but there was no single performance in Aliens that touched me as much as any three of the top performances in
0: Million Dollar Baby. I know. It's, it's like my 15-year-old self raiding I Aliens. I know. But <laughs> your
1: 15-year-old self might have been a little bit of a dick. <laughs> hey, now. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> Don't worry. Mine was, too. <laughs> Weren't they all? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Okay. And so this was, you know, we didn't even, uh, we, we, well, uh, so this is our surprise series. So we're, once again, not talking about where we're going next week.
0: That's so right. This deal is with part that. of the, uh, the uh, fun little challenge, the, the Guess the Connection series. So right. this and Siriana, so far, are the two films in this challenge. What sort of connection could they have? <laughs> it's up to you, dear listener, to track it down.
1: Uh, what did we say? people? How, how are people supposed to let us know?
0: Uh, well, we're not going to let people comment until week four when oh, okay. we announce so what the we'll fourth film is. Yeah, right, the fourth right. film. Because yeah, there's no a way they're going to know. Then yeah. it's a race. Once that fourth film, once we announce what it is, you are going to have to guess as quickly as you can to figure out what the connection is between the four films.
1: Man, I'm glad we figured this out. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know about the race part. That, that makes everything clear
0: yeah that's right so once that post goes up we gotta we gotta be on it
1: yeah that's right all right i gotta go to bed
0: all right i'm gonna do a practice my left hook
1: Okay, mine is um, mine is well. Mine has a a, a position. Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if okay. I, I, it's not quite as much about the film subject. Women should not box. Period.
0: <laughs> wow. Okay.
1: <laughs> I didn't feel that the film connected on an emotional level and that it was more like watching stock characters in action. Hillary Swank is very good, but her character moves from amateur boxer to championship contender while showing practically nothing in between. Clint failed to impress me with his performance, and I'm a Clint fan, and Morgan Freeman continues to be highly overrated. The second half drags considerably, and I felt the whole third act to be very manipulative.
0: Ouch. Ouch. But he doesn't say anything about his opinion of, of women why boxing. women should yes. box. Yeah,
1: <laughs> apparently that was the uh, the first Just, point, and then they moved on. <laughs>
0: Just to draw the reader yeah, in. Yeah, that's right. That's right. What's yours? Mine is a one-star. Warning, not a boxing movie by Peter Kill. <laughs> I assume that's how you say it. There's absolutely yeah. no vowels <laughs> in it. <laughs> There is absolutely no indication on the box, either textually or otherwise, that this is anything but an upbeat boxing movie. I purchased it thinking Swank's character would overcome adversity to rise to the top, not unlike Rocky, not become a quadriplegic and die. If you are looking for a feel-good boxing movie, do not buy this. I bought it thinking it would be a nice way to spend the evening with my girlfriend, only to be horrified and embarrassed. We wish we could forget the whole thing, especially the scene in which she tries to commit suicide by biting her own tongue off. Thanks, but no thanks, Clint. I suspect the marketing of this movie was deliberately deceptive. As for the acting, I don't understand what all the raves are about. Eastwood is simply Eastwood. He's okay. This is two different movies in one. It completely changes about halfway through, and it turns into something you won't want to see if you're expecting the girl to succeed. Ouch. 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 Yeah. Not a happy, not a happy person. Amazon. Okay, we're going to do a little game. I'm going to name a series from season four, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. Didn't
1: we just do this in season
0: three? We're going to do this one as a speed round. Here we go. Terry Gilliam. The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Jason Reitman. Labor Day. Comedy by the Brothers Cohen. Oh, brother.
1: Stephen King. Ah! Oh, The Shining. uh, Cujo. The Dead Zone. App People, Misery. Stand By Me. What else did we cover?
0: Oh, you got one more on Audible. Carpenter? Ah! Christine! Christine! Hey, you got it! We've covered lots of great movies that started as books, and most of those are on Audible. Books like The Exorcist, Requiem for a Dream, The Bishop's Wife, The Poseidon Adventure, Syriana,
1: Million Dollar Baby, LA Confidential, Double Indemnity, Detour, The Thin Man.
0: So many great movies from so many great sources. Producing this podcast
1: is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time